Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And we're heading into the final section of the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to read the verse we looked at last week, which is the close of the middle section of the Sermon on the Mount, and then I'm going to read you the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, but we will focus this morning on verses 13 and 14. Verses 13 and 14. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, For the gate is wide, and the way is easy, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard, that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will come to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? I'm sorry, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, The crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is God's word. Father, we come before you. We ask you now to come and take the Spirit's word in the Spirit's power to spiritual men and women so that we might know your truth. Lord, where there's hearts that have grown callous and hard, would you break through? Where there's hearts that are dead, would you give life? Where there's a pattern of indifference, would you shake indifference? Lord God, would you please let your word go forward? Lord, your word breaks the cedars of Lebanon in half. 
And there is nothing in our hearts that cannot be broken by the power of your word. And so we pray you would do this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. If you were going to choose two words to sum up the experience of living the Christian life, what would they be? Or let me get a little bit closer to where we are this morning. If you were going to choose two words to describe the experience of living out the Sermon on the Mount. So we've been studying for a number of months. We've been looking at how it promises blessings to the poor in spirit. We've been looking at how it demands a righteousness that's greater than the scribes and Pharisees. We've been looking at how it could almost cause anxiety with the generosity it demands of us. And if you were going to summarize the experience of living out the Sermon on the Mount, sum it up for someone. Hey, what's it like being a Christian who takes the Sermon on the Mount seriously and living it out? Give it to me in two words. This is less than an elevator pitch. Love and forgiveness, trust and obey. That's what I'm getting. It's giving, trust and obey. Small generational laughter there. Um, here's the Jesus two words. Narrow and hard. Narrow and hard. Sermon on the Mount is divided into three sections. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 16, you've got the blessings of a Christian. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are all these people who are having hard experiences. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. Verses 1 through 16, you get the blessings of a Christian. Verses 17, sorry, chapter 5, verse 17, all the way to chapter 7, verse 12, the body of the sermon that we finished last week. Uh, I don't know how else to describe it. Makes life harder. You must have a righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees. And now, when Jesus comes to the beginning of the third section of the Sermon on the Mount, which is really just Jesus sealing the deal, Jesus driving home the application, Jesus warning his people, I mean this, I'm not just trying to give you some pie-in-the-sky ethical standard, I mean this, you've got to obey this. He uses the adjective, or sorry, uses the image of a gate and a path to describe the Christian life, he uses the image of a gate and a path, and he describes that gate and that path as narrow and hard. And really, he's summarizing the effect of the whole sermon on the Christian soul. What's it like to obey the Sermon on the Mount? It's sunshine and roses, it's peace and joy all the time. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. 
not quite Jesus' description of the Christian life. He boils it all down to narrow and hard. Now, what are you doing, Lord? That's a hard sell. That's what we avoid at all costs. Nobody wants to be in a narrow place. Uh, We went to Mammoth Caves years ago, and one portion of the cave we were touring had a very unpolitically correct name. It was called Fat Man's Misery. And it may not be politically correct, but it was accurate. It was a very slender portion of the cave where you had to really make sure that you were walking at your thinnest with no baggage in order to be able to make it safely through. We don't like those kind of situations. We don't take our kids to play at the most constricted playgrounds, the smallest fields. We like broad places. And if you were to say to your kids this week, and kids, imagine if your parents said this to you. You've got a choice of lessons this week. I've got some that are hard, and some, wait for it, that are easy. Only the nerdiest children would say, give me, give me the hard. If given the choice, we all prefer wide to narrow. We all prefer easy to hard. But Jesus is making it clear here that following him is exclusively narrow and hard. And it's not broad and easy. And the point of our passage this morning, what our passage this morning is aiming to do is to cause us to be attracted to the heart and the narrow. To move our minds to think differently about the heart and the narrow. To set our wills to choose on a daily basis the hard and the narrow path of following Jesus. And the passage is really set up to help us move our hearts from being averse to what Jesus wants to being inclined to what Jesus wants. That's what each of us need. We need Jesus' own help to help our hearts choose Jesus' own way. The passage we're looking at is easily divided into three short sections. Three short sections. There's a command. Enter by the narrow way. Again, he's telling us to pursue what we are not naturally inclined to pursue. That's the command. Enter by the narrow way. And then if you'll look at that word for, which comes very next in, in, in verse 
very next. I don't know what that means, but it comes right after the command for the gate is wide. And then if you look down to verse 14, you'll see for the gate is narrow. Basically what that means is here's the command, enter by the narrow way, and here's reason number one, why you should enter by the narrow way. And then reason number two, why you should enter by the narrow way. The first reason is negative. You see that just by a quick reading. Enter by the narrow way for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. The first, second reason is positive. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Now you'll get the most out of this sermon if you're honest with yourself. If you look at yourself and ask yourself, do I love the narrow way? Has my mind been so thoroughly transformed that I want the narrow and the hard over the easy and the wide. There's lots of Christians who are on the narrow way, but they're begrudging it the whole time. And their begrudging it decreases their joy and their resolve in those hard paths. Because they haven't fully just said, that is what I've signed up for. Nothing is going wrong. Christ's way is hard and narrow, and I'm on it. I've embraced it. And the way that's easy and broad has lost its appeal to me because it leads to destruction. Well, let's look carefully now at the text. Sort of surveyed it. Let's look carefully at it. Look at the command. Enter by the narrow way. Let's begin by getting to know what exactly is being said here. The first thing I want you to notice is that the command to enter is a command to enter the eternal kingdom of heaven when we die. Well, what is Jesus talking about when he says enter? You might say, he said he's talking about entering the narrow gate. Not exactly. It's entering by the narrow gate. What we're entering into is not actually the narrow gate. The narrow gate goes somewhere. What Jesus wants us to enter into is something different, something wonderful. And we can figure it out by noticing that the word enter is used two other times outside of this verse in the Sermon on the Mount. I want to show you those times. What is Jesus calling us to enter? What are we being called to enter into? We get insight from Matthew 7.21 and from Matthew 5.20. So look with me at Matthew 7.21. Here in the same section, really a passage that has the same effect as the one we're reading, Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, not everyone who claims the name of Christ, not everyone who claims the name of being a believer, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will, here's our word, enter. 
Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter. Enter what, Jesus? The kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. The implications there are that not everyone who makes a profession of being a Christian will actually get the benefits of really being a Christian. They won't on the last day enter the kingdom of heaven. Who will? Those who do the will of the Father. Did you see that in the text there? Okay, here's the other time the word enter is used. It's at the start of that major middle section of the Sermon on the Mount. Near the beginning of it, Jesus, before he lays down the character of a Christian, before he lays down the moral standards of a Christian, before he lays down the lifestyle of a Christian, says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never, here's our word, enter the kingdom of heaven. He's speaking about the kingdom of heaven, not as it is right now, but as as it will be on the last day. He's talking about entering heaven. He's talking about when we die, becoming part of the fullness of God's kingdom. And he says in Matthew 5.17, unless you have a real righteousness from the heart that actually conforms to the words of the Sermon on the Mount, unless you have that, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. It will go poorly when you die. There will be no rest in peace. You will only enter if you obey. And then, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, when these guys show up going, Lord, Lord, we did miracles in your name. Lord, Lord, we were superstars for you. Jesus says, whoa, 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 whoa. You might name my name, but you didn't obey me. And I'm true to my word. And because you didn't obey me, you will not enter. Here in our passage, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, I want better things for you. Enter. I want you to enter. I want you to die, and when you die, I want you to enter the kingdom of heaven. I want you to come in to all the fullness of my blessings, all the fullness of my mercy, all the fullness of being children of God. I want you to sit at the wedding feast of the Lamb and enjoy my presence forever. And so Jesus is saying to his people, enter, enter. Do not be those who just name my name, sign up for church membership, go to the right conferences, read the right books. Do not be those people. Enter. How? The narrow gate. The narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. So what is the narrow gate? Well, in context, the narrow gate is nothing more or less than accepting Jesus' teachings. Remember, I told you about the... the the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. Here's the blessings for God's people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
And then in the middle section, here are my commands. No adultery among you, no lust, no divorce. These things must be put off. And those who are saved are those who repent and believe and walk through that narrow gate of actually submitting to the lordship of Christ, of actually believing in Christ and then submitting to his teaching. We see in the very next verse, in verse 14, that the narrow gate leads to a narrow, or leads to a hard way. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it, our few. You experienced that, didn't you, when you became a Christian? You understood in the call to repent that so many of the sort of easy practices, the things you were putting up with in your life, the worldliness, the sinful ideas, the sinful actions, they had to go. They had to be put off like a heavy backpack, like a burden, like 50 unwanted pounds. They had to be shed. If you wanted to walk down the narrow way, you had to leave off the broad ways of the world. Jesus is saying that is the only way to enter. And he gives a negative reason. He gives a negative reason. So we're just moving through the text here. And he tells us the negative reason why we must enter by the narrow gate. Here's the reason. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. The crowd, the majority, uh, the vast horde of humanity has no problem getting into the broad road. If you go to the, uh, you go to an amusement park, there's some rides anyone can ride, and then there's some rides that you must be this tall to ride. And the ways of the world and the ways of destruction are the kind anyone can ride. They're easy to get on. There's no entrance requirement, no licensing required, no, requ no requirements to get on. But notice what Jesus' concern is here. His concern is that this way, this broad and easy way, leads to destruction. And this is not the first time we've heard about destruction in the Sermon on the Mount. In this present tense consumed world, in this world that's consumed with how I feel now, we need to be a people that remember there is an eternity. There is a forever after death. And for most people who have ever lived, that eternity will be filled with the destruction Jesus is talking about here. He's mentioned it multiple times in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 23, and this is a good verse for kids who may be tempted to call each other wicked names or adults who may be tempted to breathe 
degrading words under their breath at those they despise. Jesus says to all of us in verse 23, he says, if, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong verse. Let me get the right verse. In verse 22, so I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Every one who insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. The Bible is clear that at the end of this life, for those who walk in a pattern of disobeying Jesus, the end result is a hell of fire. It's not the invention of angry preachers. It is the truth of God's word. It's where God's wrath is poured out forever in fire against those who walk in disobedience to Jesus. We get the same idea in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27 through 30, where Jesus says, listen, it's a narrow way. You have to gouge out your eye if it causes you to sin. You have to cut off your hand if it causes you to sin. You have to fight sin and destroy it and get on my straight and narrow way or you will be destroyed. And he brings up again the idea of judgment and hell. Look at it there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. Do you notice that? Hell is not a place where spirits go. It's not a place where souls go. It's a place where we go in the body if we don't know Christ. John chapter 5, Jesus says, God, he will raise up the dead and give them new bodies. Why? To take them into the eternal punishment of hell. We love physical pleasures. They thrill our souls. Hell is not simply a place of spiritual anguish. It's a place of physical anguish and spiritual anguish where we are tormented in the body if we don't know Christ and in the spirit because we are removed from the presence of God. And Jesus is basically saying, I don't care how broad it feels. I don't care how easy it is. I don't care how nice it seems now. In the end, anything but a careful Christian life that walks through my narrow path and a careful Christian life that walks through my hard way, anything else is damned to destruction forever. No exceptions. You can cry, Lord, Lord, all you want. Jesus will say, I never knew you. The most terrifying thought I've thought all week is that Jesus is the one who shuts the door on those who claim they should be in heaven. But if he, if they don't have a legitimate claim on him, when he shuts the door, no one can ever open it again. No amount of knocking would ever move the heart of the Son of God to reconsider his just decision to damn those who would not obey him in this life. And the difficulty is, the road to hell is never hellish. 
The road to hell is never hellish. You know, movie directors have the decency to tell us where the movie is going through music. You know, if you hear, dun, 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 da, da, dun, you know you're going down into Hobbiton, into the Shire, where everything is nice pipe smoking and kicking back your feet and enjoying the life of peace of a hobbit. And if you hear screaming violins going on and on and on, you know the bad guy's not dead. You know where this is going. The music tells us in a movie what's going to happen in the future. And it's usually quite accurate. You don't usually have the screaming violins while you go down into the Shire. But this life is far more deceptive. The life you are living right now is more deceptive. The life you are living does not have that same kind of cue. The life you are living right now will give you cues at every step that everything is fine with you, that you will rest in peace, that it will go well with you. If you loosen some of Jesus' requirements and sort of loosen things up and don't get too particular about the details of the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry. That just means you're not being one of those narrow Christians. It's not going to be that bad. Don't you worry about it. It's all going to be fine. And it's the same lie that Satan told Eve, has God really said? Has God really said? There's a reason why the New Testament has a chorus, and the chorus is this, do not be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why does the New Testament keep saying, do not be deceived? I know why. I remember vividly why. I remember the first one of the first converts we ever saw to Emmanuel. He made a clear profession of faith. He showed zeal for the gospel. And he would not leave immersion in sexual morality. But when you confronted him over it, he wept more over his sins than I have ever wept over mine. And I remember every time I would look into those tear-filled eyes, weeping over sin, and I would think, surely this man is going to heaven. But he wouldn't quit. There was no abatement of his sexual morality. It would not stop. He was immersed in it. He was in bondage to it. He wouldn't quit it. But he was the most tearful, repentant Christian I ever saw. And I remember my heart going, oh, this is what it feels like to be deceived. This is what it feels like to think, surely this man will enter the kingdom of God. But God's word was there saying, do not be deceived. The sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God. And tears do not jerk the chains of the heart of the Son of God when they are being used to cover sin. You will be destroyed if you go along with the crowd you will be destroyed if you loosen God's word to make your life easier. This was a sermon preached to Christians. These warnings are for Christians. The one who is saved is the one who endures to the end. And so I am no faithful pastor if I do not say to you, you will not be saved unless you press on. 
You will not be saved by being able, you could quote the, you could quote the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the 1689 Confession, the Abstract of Principles, the Emmanuel Baptist Church Doctrinal Statement. You could quote it all to Jesus. And if you won't bow the knee of your life to him, you will be destroyed. A former member of Emmanuel Baptist Church and a good friend of mine, Matt Click wrote recently, around New Year, many people are grabbing a hold of a Bible reading plan. But what most Christians need is a Bible applying plan. That's, that's the truth. The most important thing for any of us is that we become Christians who apply God's word. You would be better off to apply the little you know than to grow in knowledge that you do not plan to apply. The next thing Jesus gives us is the positive reason. He gives us the positive reason why we should obey him, why we should follow in his path. And the positive reason is an honest reason, isn't it? I mean, he doesn't sugarcoat it one bit. What's it gonna be like following you, Jesus? Narrow and hard. Narrow and hard. I've got something to say about modesty. I've got something to say about husbands being loving. I want you to forgive your enemies. I want you to turn the other cheek when you're insulted. And when you get really, really righteous so that you actually are living heads and tails above the crowd, I don't want you to judge others and become a censorious hypocrite. It's a very fine line. I want you praying and fasting and giving, but not so anyone notices. It's a very fine line. It's a very narrow course of obedience. He has something to say about every area of our lives. And he wants, in the prophets it predicted, I will save my people and they will all be given one way. Now that doesn't make us lemmings. One guy can like this music, another person can like that music, that's fine. But the one Christian ethic is one. There aren't 15 different kinds of Christian lives. When I was a kid, uh, high-tech Gen X entertainment was the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure book. I see a few familiar nods. And the Choose Your Own Adventure book, you, you opened up the book, and he started reading the adventure, and I said, if you want to go up the stairs in the scary house, turn to page eight. And if you want to go out of the scary house, turn to page 45. And you turned, and then the story went this way or that. And you could determine the plot line of the book. It's not that way with Jesus. He says, here is my beautiful but unflinching way. And it's, it's a narrow path. And it doesn't make your life easier. It doesn't make your life easier. In fact, 
one of the things that almost always happens when people get on my way is their life gets harder. They start trying to honor their parents. Oh, those parents with their 30-year-old ideas and all their sanctification issues. They try to honor them. They begin to speak out for the gospel at work, at work where, as Carlo described it, there's all kinds of pressure to bow the incense, to burn incense to Caesar or to affirm the sexual perversion of our day. And all of that makes things harder. But it leads to life. It leads to life. That's what he's got. You're wondering, how does he make this command doable? How does he make this command palatable? Here it is. This hard way leads to life. This will get you in on the good stuff. There's more than a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow. There is eternal life. You know what? I don't think you can do better than the description of life that's given to us in the Beatitudes. The start of the Sermon on the Mount Jesus started with these blessings. And the blessings were basically, they were blessings for people who had embraced the hard, narrow life. The life where you have poverty of spirit, where you mourn over your sin, where you hunger and thirst after righteousness. He had blessings for those people. Listen to what those blessings are. If you pursue the hard, and the narrow way of Jesus, you'll shed tears. But the Bible says you will be comforted. He will wipe away every tear. All the wickedness that made you mourn, it all will be wiped away and you will be comforted. If you embrace the hard and the narrow way of Jesus, this one is wild, especially if you can't seem to ever get out of an apartment, can't even get any land to your own, and everybody seems to want land these days. If you follow Jesus, you will inherit the earth. So which part of this is yours, Ryan? Pretty much all of it. Under Jesus, I got a piece of Asia and Europe. You will inherit the earth. Glorious. What have the kids been doing? Oh, playing in the backyard for the last 50,000 years. Any problems? No, there's no snakes out there, no hornets, no, no nothing. It's all delightful. You will be satisfied. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied because in eternal life, we will live in a new heavens and new earth where righteousness will. Have you ever watched the news and be like, I wish this would change, and then seen the new policy at work, I wish this would change, and just you just get mad at all the unrighteous, then someone cuts you off and that's the straw. There will come a day where every door is unlocked on every house, where every single city that's built, and there will be cities built in heaven, where every city is filled with the best laws and the best righteousness and the best people at every layer of everything. It will be all righteousness, 
all the time. You will receive mercy. No one in heaven will deserve to be there. Everyone in heaven will have been given a free ticket they didn't deserve. And every heart panting you have in this life for more of God's mercy will be satisfied as the Lamb of God who was crucified for sinners is the sun you bask in every minute of every day. You will see God. <laughs> what? I mean, if we were to see God right now, aside from the destruction it would wreak on your soul, your eyeballs would burn to smithereens if the Shekinah glory were to show you all of his glory. But he will be the sun you bask in. You, you could lay on a beach in his presence and it would only be life-giving. We will see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. A lot of us deal with, who am I? Who am I really? What's my identity? You lose your job, who am I? Your parents are bad news, who am I? Your people have got a bad history, who am I? Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's amazing. Jesus says we're each going to have a special name in the book of Revelation. Like everybody's going to have a, like, like nobody. Can you imagine if heaven was like half the people had nicknames and other people got called Mr. Fullerton? It'd be awful. But in heaven, everyone's got a nickname from Jesus. Everyone's in. Everyone's a child. Everyone's a special son. Or, there's no middle children in heaven. Now you middle children, you can come to heaven. But you won't be, there'd be no redheaded stepchildren in heaven. And we'll be there with Rahab and Moses. We'll be there with Isaiah and Jeremiah. The Apostle Paul. I can't wait to walk into the coffee shop where someone's talking to Paul. And they're like, remember that time you tried to kill me? And... Uh, and they're just delighting in the presence of God. <laughs> Beloved, the reason we attend to God's narrow, particular, and even constraining path, only constraining to our sin, it's because of where it leads. It's because of where it goes. Well, I had a number of reflections I wanted to go to, but I'll just leave you with two. I am stressing our need to obey. And I'm stressing our need to obey because Jesus stresses our need to obey. And because we're all capable of being so gospel-centered that we never get around to doing what the king says. But Jesus knew how to do this right. And it was his idea that the preaching of God's word 
be accompanied by the taking of the Lord's Supper. He knew that even as we heard his call to be Lord in a real and practical way, we would also need his reminders that he is our Savior. As you take this bread and you take this cup, remember there is forgiveness for every past sin, no matter how much, no matter how egregious, no matter how scandalous, no matter how juvenile, no matter how foolish, no matter how shameful, there is forgiveness in Jesus for all of our sins. And when you take that bread in that cup, you say, as the Lutheran Catechism talks about, as surely as this bread is in my hands, Christ died for me. And as surely as this cup is on my tongue, he has forgiven all of my sins. Do not try to get spiritual at the Lord's Supper. The physicality of it was meant to minister to your soul. You need more than words. You need bread and a cup to remind you, I concretely died for you. You are in my covenant. Enter, enter by the narrow way. I've forgiven you, I've bought you. Enter by the narrow way. I am Savior and Lord. Enter by the narrow way. And then finally, and I'll sit down. Those of you who don't know Christ, you're not a Christian. Or if you'd claim to be a Christian, you're realizing you might be on that Lord, Lord side of things. Where you know how to name the name or make a good confession of faith, but there's no reality, no changed life, nothing different. Nothing supernatural that would love the unlovely, honor the dishonorable. If that's you, then what I've just presented to you is what Jesus would call counting the cost. Beloved, evangelism should not just be making people all the most glorious promises of the Christian life. There are glorious promises, peace, joy, forgiveness, redemption. He's coming back to give us a place in heaven. Those are real and true and ought to be explained and extolled, but there's a cost. And you do not want to lie to people about the narrowness of the way and the hardness of the walk on their way in. So one person put it, what you win them with is what you win them to. And if you win them with a false view of the Christian life, you've won them to a false Christ. And so I would say to you this, Jesus' way is narrow. It requires that you repent of your sins and it requires that you believe in one Savior to be saved. He is the way and the truth and the, and the life and no one comes to the Father except through him. It's a narrow way that ushers you into a narrow path, but it's worth it. It's worth it. It will make this life harder, but what is this spark of a life compared to the burning flaming, eternal flame of heaven and eternal life with God. Come, repent and believe in him this morning. Trust in him and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We thank you for your amazing grace, grace to die on the cross for us, 
Grace to transform us. Grace to call us to follow you and to be those with true assurance who are submitted to your will and on the path to heaven. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.